from Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Illinois now officially prohibits the sale and distribution of these mass killing machines and rapid fire devices. The multiple sheriffs across Illinois are refusing to enforce House Bill 5471, the Protect Illinois Communities Act. I really thought this all through and did a lot of research, talked to a lot of people, and, and decided that, you know, this was clearly a, a violation of our Second Amendment rights. And, and that the oath I took was to uphold the entire Constitution, which include that Second Amendment. And I, I felt so strongly about it that myself and, and uh, I don't know, looks around about 84, 85 other sheriffs throughout the state agree with me. That is the Sangamon County Sheriff Jack Campbell. He's been joined by dozens of other colleagues in announcing they don't plan to enforce the newly signed assault weapons ban in Illinois. Governor J.B. Pritzker pushed for that and he signed the measure this week. He also says it's their job to do so. We'll talk about it in other action in the recently concluded lame duck session of the legislature. That and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and joining us we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. And joining us today we have Dave McKinney. He's a reporter for WBEC. Dave, it's always good to have you back on the show. Yeah, Sean, thanks for having me. Well, let's start with this assault weapons ban. We'll get to some other things later. The new law that takes effect immediately bans these AR-15 style guns, high capacity magazines also banned. New gun rights, now the, the gun rights groups rather, have made it clear that the, the, from the start they would challenge this in court. But I was a little surprised to see so many sheriffs say they won't enforce it. Dave, your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, these are all primarily Republicans. It's a, it, it's a pretty, it, it looks like a fairly orchestrated kind of political response to the governor here. Um, you know, the question is, uh, I mean, it's going to win all of these sheriffs points in their communities because, you know, they represent areas where where uh, gun rights are a big issue and they have a lot of hunters and people who, who don't want to have any kind of infringement on their guns. But the reality is, um, you know, it, it, there was a time, I remember there was a time when when police organizations generally were favorable toward restrictions on guns because they didn't want to be outgunned. And, and here you have a situation where you've got, uh, you know, one prominent law enforcement group in the state of Illinois telling people it's okay to go out with AR-15s and possibly outgun uh, people who are who are on these these sheriff's uh, staffs. I mean, it's a it's a strange kind of upside down thing that that it didn't it, it didn't feel like it used to be that way. Well, Charlie, we talked before this show uh, of whether or not we've seen something similar. You, of course, have a much longer history in watching Illinois government. We did see a little pushback on COVID protocols, but I've not seen anything like this uh, right after a law was signed. We've seen people come out and be in opposition to it, but not saying that they won't basically enforce it. Yeah, it struck me that the sheriffs are being premature in several respects. First off, uh, with all due respect to our local sheriff, he is not a member of an appellate court. He is not someone whose responsibility is to judge whether or not a law is constitutional. His job is to carry out the law the way it's written. The legislature makes the law. The executive branch and the sheriff as part of the executive branch carries out the law. And he may not like the law, but it's still his responsibility to carry it out. He doesn't get to decide, oh, this is unconstitutional. 
And it's also struck me that it's, it's rather premature because I'm assuming from all the rhetoric that they are focused on the portions of law that would require people who now own these weapons and were grandfathered in will have to register them with the state police. But the deadline for registering is January 1st of next year. So that means it's 11 and a half months from now. So the issue of whether or not it's going to be enforced in my mind is really premature because we, I'm almost certain we would have at least some court ruling, not the final definitive one, but some indication long before next January, whether or not in fact, this legislation does pass constitutional muster. But I think it's as Dave said, these guys are political people. They're not law enforcement in the same way that a, a local police officer would be in that they are elected officials and they're playing to, to the uh, gun lovers in their, in their constituency. Yeah, Charlie, you touched on the fact that people will have to register these guns. They've got up to a year to do so if they already own them. But, you know, I, I can see maybe somebody saying, I don't like the, the legislation, don't like the law. But we already have laws that are common out there, including the FOID law that, you know, if you're going to possess a weapon, you have to, you know, you have to sign up and get a FOID card, all of that. It's I guess I'm not seeing the uh, the concern, the same concern over this specific provision because there was other ones out there. I think from my perspective, part of it is that it's this argument that's been made all along by the the rifle associations and the the gun save lives people that this is a slippery slope. If you and, and there was opposition to the Floyd card and there still is there are people who want to get rid of that. The, as, as soon as you outlaw one thing, the next thing you know, they'll be coming for something else. And pretty soon they'll come and take my guns. It's not just that I have to register. They'll send out the uh, stormtroopers to steal my guns and then I'll be helpless. I think wasn't it former Senator Darren Bailey who made some comment about, you know, come and get my guns kind of daring. And some of the legislators, in fact, during the debate, flat out said, I'm not going to follow this law. So it's, it's a, a phenomenon. I don't know if, if it's something that you would see everywhere else. What would you say in, in, in the, uh, like in European Union or something like that, but here in America, in the United States, we really do love our guns and we're very sensitive towards anything that would it infringe upon what we see as this constitutional right to have whatever kind of firepower we want. Dave, not to put you on the spot, but I mean, where do you see this going? I mean, Governor Pritzker is touting this as a major accomplishment, so are a lot of the other supporters. Uh, at the same time, if there's going to be this big fight over enforcement, if it's not enforced properly throughout the state, uh, is it as big of a win as they're, you know, playing it up to be? Well, I mean, that's that's true, Sean. I mean, the governor and, and gun control advocates, you know, will get their headline uh, because the governor signed the bill pretty much within hours of it passing. But, you know, there there are pending challenges to this, uh, to, to similar assault weapon bans. I believe there are two that are in the federal court system right now. And I expect in short order, we, we're going to see probably a multi-pronged uh, legal response in federal court because that's where these guys are going to head. 
because you know the aim is ultimately get one of these cases all the way up to the to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now that it's it's uh, con controlled by conservatives and presumably uh, advocates for for uh, guns rights there, so that's the aim to get this up there. And you know, Charlie hit on a on a point here that that I know that the uh, gun rights advocates talk about, which is uh, the slippery slope aspect that uh, it, it is going to you know lead to other things, but. You know, you have to think about what it was exactly that shaped this law. And that was that we had a July 4th parade in Illinois where a rooftop gunman shot and killed seven people and injured dozens more at a, at a parade, you know, orphaned a, 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 a toddler. And the, the idea that we see these AR-15 guns ha uh, popping up over and over again at these mass shootings you know, it, it it sort of begs to for, for some sort of governmental response to that. I mean, it you don't see this in other countries. And I know I perhaps sound like I'm an advocate on this and I'm not, but I, it, it's a it's a situation where, um, you know, you have to be mindful of what led to this. It was a parade. And and there were the, the thing about the the, the 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 gun rights people will point to as well is that the way in which this alleged gunman got his gun, he was under 21. His father helped him get it. It was clear that there were some issues uh, with with uh, this this young man's past that might not have, uh, you know, enabled him to get a gun on his own. I mean, there there are a number of factors where uh, you know the system didn't work uh, the way it should have with this alleged gunman. But still, that's what led to this. And and um, you 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 just see this clash again. We've seen it over and over and over again, where you know downstate. They they say we don't have these kinds of things happen in our in our neck of the woods. Uh, you know, it's it's a mental health problem. You know, deal with the mental health problem. Um, but you know, it, it's uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago we did have a big downstate mass shooting in DeKalb. You know, it was a Northern Illinois University. So it happens everywhere, and and so that's the that's the real motivation for these uh, gun control advocates and pushing for it. Yeah, Charlie, we've, I've asked this question of you before. I, I know what the answer is going to be, but I think it's worth mentioning. There really, there, there's common ground in the sense that nobody wants to see these things happen, but is there some common ground for these types of restrictions? I don't know that I'm seeing that, at least from, uh, the rhetoric we've heard over the last several weeks. No, and I, and I think the, the partisan breakdown the partisan division is is really stark more so than back in the days when i was uh, an active reporter covering the general assembly which was eons ago but then it was more of a regional issue than a republican and democrat and as a matter of fact downstate democrats in the house were the ones who who were more active in pushing for things like concealed carry and it was suburban and Chicago Republicans, back then there were Chicago Republicans, would be opposed. And it was seen as, in Chicago, it was, these are tools that gangbangers use to shoot little kids. And downstate it was, hey, I want to go deer hunting. I want to go duck hunting. But in part because of the regional difference now between the parties, when, when this legislation finally cleared, the, the, the final vote was in the Illinois House, and it was 68 to 41. There were only two House Republicans who voted for it. Outgoing uh, Republican leader Jim Durkin, 
of Western Springs and Representative Bradley Stevens of Rosemont, both lawmakers who had territory, whose districts at, at the time included part of Cook County, and no other Republican anywhere voted for it. And there were several Democrats, four Democrats who voted for it, or voted against it, pardon me. Uh, Anthony DeLuca, who's from Chicago Heights, Larry Walsh, who's from Elwood, both of those are South Suburban, Southwest Suburban areas. And then Lance Yednick of Ottawa and Michael Halpin of Rock Island. And every other Democrat voted for it. And the, the Democratic Party no longer has a presence to any great extent outside the Chicago metro area. And the Republicans, conversely, don't have the same presence they once upon a time did in the suburbs. So this has become a more of a partisan issue than it used to be. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and WBEC's Dave McKinney. Well, Dave, I mentioned there were some other things that happened during what uh, is often called the lame duck session. And one of those dealt with abortion legislation that was approved. And the governor, uh, as we sat down to record this show, is uh, holding a signing ceremony for this legislation. Uh, Give us just a quick overview of what this would do. Well, this is a, a, a this is legislation that arose from the U.S. Supreme Court's uh, summertime ruling on uh, the, the Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade. And what what happened, as we all remember, was that there were states, red states, that were imposing virtual bans on abortion, and and getting fairly punitive punitive uh, with patients that were seeking abortions from out of state, and then also with uh, doctors who have medical licenses in in dual states. I mean, if you have a, a license in the state of Texas and in the state of Illinois, uh, Texas wanted to be able to sanction a doctor's medical license there and presumably put that person out of business here as well for performing an abortion. And so this legislation aimed to deal with those um, sanctions, the legal sanctions that, uh, that uh, states outside of Illinois were imposing on providers here who uh, were, were doing abortions and then the patients coming here. There was also language in the bill that requires health insurers to cover uh, uh, hormone therapy drugs for, for people who are transitioning between genders, uh, 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 drugs that uh, uh, induce abortions, and then drugs that also uh, you know inhibit uh, the HIV virus. Uh, before and after possible exposure. So those were the those were the the kind of the headline grabbing elements of the bill. But you know, for for Governor Pritzker, uh, it was something that he uh, openly embraced in the campaign. And and you know, the campaign really was almost a referendum in November on abortion itself, because uh, you know the governor was facing Darren Bailey, who had compared abortion to the Holocaust, and that kind of blew up in his face in, in Bailey's face, and then. We had those two races in the state Supreme Court where uh, abortion rights favoring uh, ju- uh, justice candidates defeated uh, opponents, Republican opponents who weren't favor, uh, you know, in favor of abortion. So um, it, it's it's a it's an issue that Democrats see as a political winner in Illinois, and so I think you know we're continuing to see uh, you know more and more efforts to try to bolster Illinois as sort of a safe 
haven for abortions in the Midwest. And let me, well, I guess jump ahead for just a moment here, Dave, because the governor, of course, was sworn in this week, gave his inaugural speech, and he talked about a constitutional amendment regarding abortion. Now, uh, to protect that right in Illinois, now, that doesn't seem like that right's going away. In fact, it keeps getting expanded in a, in a lot of areas. But what is, uh, you know, in the state, what would be the purpose for that? Well, I mean, you know, it would likely be on the ballot in 2024 presidential election. It would be uh, designed, I think, to, um, you know, bring out people to motivate voters who favor abortion rights to come to the polls that year. That's that's kind of what we see with these referendums and constitutional amendments. They typically have that kind of underlying purpose to them. Um, you know, we didn't really see exactly what the uh, what the language of that, you know, what what language Pritzker favors. Uh, but I would expect, you know, they, they have to have this, if they're going to do it, the legislature has to have this, uh, you know, pretty much in place and position by May of 2024. So there's, there's plenty of time left to, to do that, but it's, you know, it would, it would, it would be a similar step as we saw with workers' rights, uh, in this last election where, you know, for labor, it was designed to, to, to bolster, uh, the legal, safeguards of, uh, you know, union organizing in Illinois and, and to get uh, union voters to come to the polls, we'll see that uh, effect as well if an abortion constitutional amendment uh, gets on the ballot in 2024. And we had some technical difficulties with Charlie, but he's back with us via phone. Charlie, uh, certainly the governor has made it clear he's in support of reproductive rights for women. That is, like I said, he made he doubled down on that, if you want to say so, during his inaugural speech this week. Uh, your takeaway on that as well, I mean, like Dave said, it certainly could help Democrats maybe in a presidential election next time, presidential election year. But the governor seems sincere on this issue. Yeah, well, Governor Pritzker has been someone who's been very interested in women's rights for a very long time. He was, uh, I guess you would call him pro-choice and advocating for abortion rights long before he was ever running for governor. And so this is not something that's uh, politically expedient on his part. It's something he truly believes in. And it's interesting, too, because the impact, we talked about the impact here in Illinois uh, with, with Darren Bailey, who was very, very... Uh, what would you say, pro-life and made no bones about it, faring so poorly. But I think if you look at the national scene, what the analysts are saying after the election, one of the reasons why the Republican Party nationally did not do as well as, as was predicted is because of the Dobbs decision that threw out Roe v. Wade that energized women so I think it's an issue that's not just here in, in Illinois, but even nationally, that energizes women. And as was suggested, if you have an amendment to codify in our Constitution a woman's right to choose, that would probably energize some women voters who otherwise would not be all that enthusiastic about going to the polls. That would be my guess. Charlie, I also want to mention there was another uh, piece of legislation that made it through. Uh, this one uh, could have quite an impact on people. Uh, it would guarantee that everyone that works in the state a minimum of 40 hours of paid leave per year. Several business groups actually went neutral on this. Yeah, I think it's a pretty significant uh, piece of legislation. And as a matter of fact, uh, I'm pretty sure that Senator Tammy Duckworth in Congress is part of a coalition that's trying to get something similar 
on the books nationally. But what this would do is, is it would allow workers to earn paid leave starting on their first day at a rate of one hour of leave for every hour's work, every 40 hours worked, up to 40 hours of paid leave for the year. And it will take effect next January 1st, so a year from now. And the object of this is to provide some kind of safeguard or uh, economic cushion for folks who are not able to have the luxury of if a kid gets sick or if they're ill themselves or if there's a family member that they have to take care of, being able to take off work and lose that paycheck for that uh, part. And as you said, the business interests were neutral on the bill. And one of the analysts suggested that reason was because they were concerned that there were more onerous from businesses' point of view proposals on deck in Chicago. And they were hoping that having a statewide law would kind of mitigate those. And the workers' rights groups and the unions all supported it. All right. Let's save a couple of minutes here at the end to talk about former Speaker Michael Madigan. Uh, ever since the indictment came down, there has been a lot of discussion of when or if he will go to trial. Well, a trial date has now been set. Uh, and also some more news coming out this week, Dave, regarding uh, regarding the Madigan case. Some more evidence from wiretaps was released. Did not put Madigan in a good light, I would say. No, not at all. I mean, these you know we have a, a big trial coming up on March 6th, which are the uh, the, the four executives and lobbyists for Commonwealth Edison. And while Madigan is not on trial there, he's going to be a central figure because the, the whole case there uh, is built around these executives and lobbyists trying to curry favor with the speaker in order to advance favorable legislation for ComEd through the state house. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the evidence that the government put forth was basically, it's called the Santiago proffer. It, it basically laid out what the government's case against these four individuals, including uh, Madigan's, uh, you know, right arm, basically, for much of his career, Michael McLean, uh, about how, how uh, you know, kind of symbiotic they, they all were together. And so, uh, that's that's going to be a big thing to watch for, you know, a, a trial that probably will go at least six to seven to eight weeks uh, uh, during the spring. And then, as you mentioned, the Madigan trial was, was uh, the trial date for that was set for April 1st of 2024. And by that point, we'll know kind of how this trial goes. And, you know, there is potential uh, that the government could flip one or more of these individuals to, to testify against Madigan. That's, that has not happened yet that we know of, um, but that's that's something to, to watch here because if, if there are convictions against these individuals, then you can expect, uh, you, you know, some or all of them might be looking for favorable treatment uh, come sentencing time. Well, also this week, uh, Dave, there was some announcement too that the U.S. attorney, John Lausch, that he is going to be leaving. So he's not going to be around for any of these trials, it sounds like. He could leave as early as February or, or March does that change things at all? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, it, there had been some talk about him <clears throat> leaving during the transition between the two uh, presidencies, between Trump and, and Biden. And uh, because of these high profile cases, I mean, Madigan being front and center in the ComEd case and uh, uh, former alderman Ed Burke, they're all out there. 
um, there, there was a push to try to get him to stay on a little longer. And he did. And, you know, he, he's really kind of been in the, in the thick of things lately because uh, we learned about this decision uh, that, that, you know, to move on from uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, who had appointed uh, John Lausch, the U.S. attorney here, to basically do a review of the presidential or of the the, the uh, uh, classified records that were found uh, in in President Biden's uh, uh, offices. So, um, you know, he's uh, Lausch is uh, has has been a you know real important figure in in uh, these political corruption cases. I mean, he has had so many convictions of, of familiar faces around the state house. There there are almost too many of them to to recite here. Charlie, uh, this is not uncommon to see somebody in the U.S. attorney's role leave. That happens quite often. He's been in it, what we say, five years. So, I mean, not, not shocking that it would be time for him to move on and move on maybe to the private sector. Yeah, it is not at all uncommon. I would guess it's not going to have that dramatic an impact on any of the cases that are pending, whether it's against the ComEd folks, uh, Madigan, Alderman Ed Burke, anything else they have on the fire because there are career people there who are the sort of the worker bees who would be carrying on this things. And if I'm not mistaken, some of the cases that Lausch uh, successfully prosecuted against corrupt politicians were initiated under his predecessors. So I assume that we're going to see the same thing. Let's go to our notes from the field, and Charlie, we'll stay with you on this one. Okay. As of midnight on Thursday, there had already been 1,164 bills filed in the Illinois House, and the first 1,124 of them were pre-filed. The House has a, a provision that you can, once you're elected, you can have legislation and, and file it with the House clerk, and then when the session actually begins, they'll be read into the record and assigned to committee. Anyway, the very first one, which was pre-filed on the 5th of December last year, would legalize the use of magic mushrooms for medical purposes only. It would create it would the Compassionate Use and Research of Entheogens Act. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And this is sponsored by Representative LaShawn Ford, a Chicago Democrat, who says it would create a psychedelic therapy program that employs natural medicines produced and tested at licensed service centers to treat things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, that maybe haven't responded that well to traditional treatments. And so he's arguing that we should try some of these uh, psychedelic programs, the so-called magic mushrooms. All right. And Dave? This is, I, I'm not sure I'm going to get a pizza with with that on there, um, Charlie. <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> um, I, the the uh, Governor Pritzker was in Quincy this past week. Uh, uh, he, there was a ceremony laying the final beam in the nearly $300 million um, replacement of the Quincy Veterans Home. And, and that that's uh, something that my colleague at WBEZ, Tony, Edward, or Tony uh, Arnold, and I both spent a lot of time reporting on because that was the site of, of in, beginning in 2015 of multiple Legionnaires disease outbreaks. And it became a pretty important issue in the 2018 gubernatorial election 
uh, because you know there were issues of of some cover-ups in the Rauner administration, and uh, you know there there were several laws that changed as a result of it. Uh, this facility is moving along, and they expect to have the thing uh, open for 210 veterans, and then uh, I think up to 80 of their spouses uh, beginning in uh, uh, early next year in February. It's a big investment in, in, in a nearly $300 million overhaul of the state's largest veterans home. Okay, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler and WBEZ's Dave McKinney. You can get a podcast of our show. It's available at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and join us again next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR. Illinois Public Radio.